working for us. Today's Bible reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, words from 12, chapter 6 to 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, words from 12. We are not trying to command ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God has reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I help you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Oh, grab, a, grab a seat, guys. Welcome along. Lovely to have you here. Good morning. My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors of Wagga Evangelical Church. A special welcome to you if you're new or visiting especially. We hope it's not the first time you visit us. We hope it's the first of many times that you might be along. And it is really wonderful as we gear up to the Christmas uh, season. We, we love to have a bit of an invite celebration service a little bit earlier than Christmas because we recognise that lots of people head away on holidays. Uh, we get a bit of an, uh, an odd mix in and out at this time of year. So it's really great that you're able to be with us here. Please stick around. There's some activities afterwards. Mitch will give some information about that afterwards. And if you are in uh, town for Christmas next week, we'll be here, 9am. Please join us. Um, as I said, my name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm going to begin like we begin every time we come to read, uh, read and understand and unpack the Bible. We're going to start by praying. So would you pray with me? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be with us again today as we read your word. We ask that by your spirit, you would not just help us to understand it, but to apply it to our lives. 
both for our good and for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, it's a bit of a season of Christmas carols, isn't it? There's lots of Christmas carols sung at this time of year. I'm not going to sing it, but have you ever sung these lyrics? Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn King. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinner reconciled. Now, you all will recognize that, probably have sung it many times. Maybe you've already sung it a few times or found yourself sort of toe-tapping in the shops as it's playing in the background. You know that one? Don't you love the Christmas music on loop in the shopping centers? Anyways, that's a different story. And it's easy to become comfortable or sort of a little bit complacent with this phrase, but do you know, have you realized this verse contains the most contentious life altering proclamation that is super dangerous if it's true you ever recognize that do you realize that look at those words on the screen do you realize contention danger life altering proclamation if true supernatural beings have come and declared a king born who not only has the authority to bring peace and mercy to earth which is clearly needed at every level but he also has the authority to reconcile that is reunite, re-establish relationship, restore harmony between God and sinners. Have you ever realized that as you're tapping your toe, walking around Big W, picking up Christmas presents? Do you understand the universal and personal significance and impact of that claim? Anyone here watch Q&A? Any Q&A fans amongst us? I'm not sure if it's... Is it still running, by the way? I haven't watched it for a little while, I must admit. Is it still going? Yeah, no, anyways, back in the day, I was a fan of it, Tony Joe and his crew. Uh, 2013, I'm referring to, in fact, the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. Did anyone remember that? Do you remember when they do the Festival of Dangerous Ideas? This one particular year they did it, 2013, they had several uh, audience members asking questions. The last lady to ask a question, her name was Lisa Maloof, and she asked the participants or the panellists this question. She said, which so-called dangerous idea do you each think would have the greatest potential to change the world for the better if it were implemented. And on the panel, there were different people. There was the uh, Australian feminist author, Jermaine Greer. She said something about genuinely embracing freedom. That's a really dangerous idea if we did that. There was Dan Savage, an American uh, author, uh, uh, sort of political activist, LGBTQ advocate. His dangerous idea was uh, population control, mandatory abortion for 30 years. There's a dangerous idea. And then this man that's featured here in the middle, you'll see him there, he's speaking. He's there's a British man named Peter Hitchens, prominent, uh, brother of prominent atheist Christopher Hitchens, if you know the man. And he said this, and I'll bring up his quote on, on the side here. He said, The most dangerous idea in human history and philosophy remains the belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and rose from the dead, and that is the most dangerous idea you will ever encounter. And then Tony Jones looked at him, the compare, and said, you can't leave it there. <laughs> what do you mean by that? What exactly do you mean? And he con- so he continued, because it alters the whole of human behaviour and all our responsibilities. It turns the universe from a meaningless chaos into a designed place that where there is justice and there is hope. Therefore, we all have the duty to understand that justice and work towards that hope. It alters us all. If we reject, us, if reject it, it alters us as well. It is incredibly dangerous. It's why so many people turn against it. Do you agree with Peter Hitchens? In fact, have you ever given that any due consideration, any thought? 
I hope you have, and in fact, you're going to today. <laughs> in fact, you, hopefully on your way in, you will have been given a little service outline. You'll notice that the title for this passage that we're looking at in the Bible, The Gift of Self-Forgetfulness, it's a dangerous, strange idea in itself, a weird thing to be saying at Christmas. What do we mean, or what do I mean, I wrote it, what do I mean by the gift of self-forgetfulness? Does it mean thinking more about others? It's a popular idea at Christmas, is that what I'm getting at? No. Does it mean thinking less of yourself, as in you know, thinking negatively about yourself, a bit of self-deprecation, always good at Christmas time? No. Does it mean thinking of yourself less often, less focus on either self-bashing or self-praise? Is that what I'm driving out? Not at all. What I'm talking about here is not one of those three popular ideas, but rather a completely new paradigm, a completely new lens through which we need to look through to understand and live life. In fact, we find it in the middle of the reading we just heard by Danny in verse 15 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me read it again for you. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, go and grab a Bible from at the back. If you don't own a Bible, put your name in that one. It's yours. Merry Christmas. This is what it says in the middle of this chapter that we'd heard Danny read. Talking about Christ who died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Here's what I'm talking about when I talk about the gift of self-forgetfulness. This claim in the middle of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, which says that Christ's death means that they must put him first. Live not for yourself, but live for Christ first. Now, why would someone want to do that? Why would anyone want to do that? In fact, isn't religion for the weak and the vulnerable, for the brainwashed or the gullible? Some of you think that, don't you? And in fact, most people in our comfy Western societies, we don't have a significant problem and therefore we aren't looking for a specific answer in the religious space, if you will. I think you look around and you'll agree on balance. We're all reasonably well-fed, well-dressed, comfortable. We've got enough time and uh, disposable income to indulge in some hobbies or creature comforts. Therefore, there is no need and certainly no time for Jesus. A lot of people just don't see the value add to life. Am I right or am I right? Are you presently in that category? The I don't think I have time or, sorry, need or time for Jesus. If you are, I'm really pleased you're here, by the way. That's terrific. You've probably invited, been invited by someone that knows you who wants you to come along to this church or you've seen our invitation. I don't care how you've come. I'm super chuffed you're here. But I want to share something with you in the spirit of complete transparency. I'm not just keen for you to have an enjoyable experience today at church, though I hope you do. I'm much more hopeful that today would be a momentous occasion in your life, not just, sorry, not just in terms of your calendar highlights for 2022, but in terms of your whole life story. Kind of like two paths diverging in the forest. You know that old metaphor? Which path will you take? I hope this is that moment for you. It's not a small hope, is it? It's not a modest goal. And you should be aware that it's got nothing to do with the quality of the coffee that you drink or the sausage you'll eat later. I'm not basing that on the excitement of the rides or the activities that we hope you'll stick around and enjoy. It's not even based on the caliber of the people and the company you'll keep, though on balance, the people here this morning are my favorite people to be around. 
No, what has the potential to make this the most momentous day in your life story is a single sentence that mirrors the sentiment in those first heralding angels in that famous Christmas carol. It's an invitation to realize an unmatched, priceless promise that is impossible to top by definition. And we've heard it read there in our Bible reading already. It's actually the very end of the Bible reading that we heard. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. 2 Corinthians verse six, sorry, chapter 6, verse 2 of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. He writes to remind them of this earth-shattering, future-shaping, eternity-shifting of God. Read it with me there. Paul says, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of of salvation that's just one little sentence few words on a page couple of clauses but applied rightly it will not so much turn your whole life upside down as much as right side up it will flip the i don't have time for jesus to the there is nothing more important than jesus idea not based on a forceful or a manipulative you must think it's or i'll come around and you know punch the jesus india no none of that but based on the fact that there is more than enough evidence to fully be persuaded that it is true. Now, if you are here this morning and you're not a Christian at the moment, you don't think that's possible. You can't imagine a scenario or a situation or an argument that could possibly persuade you that Jesus is the most important or significant thing in the universe. Am I right? I want to say that's okay too. So was a chap who wrote this letter, Paul, moments before God knocked him off his horse and convinced him otherwise. You want to read that? Read Acts chapter 9 or Acts chapter 26. Saul of Tarsus going to Damascus to arrest and kill Christians before the God of the universe knocks him off his horse and convinces him otherwise. Well, perhaps you are a Christian here today. Perhaps you're someone who readily, happily identifies as Christian But you balk at the statement that there's nothing more important than Jesus. Perhaps you think you could name a few things in life that are at least on par with Jesus, if not practically edging him out in top position. If so, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're reconnecting potentially with church. But I want to help you understand and apply this rightly today too, so that you would flip that script. And I'm not going to try to, uh, to convince you by telling you cutesy, clever stories. I'm not going to try to tug on your heartstrings or leverage fear and guilt as motivators, good and useful as they are at times. No, I want to do, you, do this by showing you from the Bible, from God's own word in this passage we've just heard read out, exactly why Jesus is not just an optional extra, not just another decoration at Christmas time, but rather the central point of significance in the entire universe and therefore of every living soul in it. Now, as an aside, this is our regular practice um, every week at church. Nothing new or different today. Every week we come and we work through books of the Bible. We just happen to be in 2 Corinthians at the minute. We happen to be at this passage. This is a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in approximately AD 55. This is what we're doing today. That's why I'm speaking on it. But let's turn to the passage itself. Let's have a look here. The first thing to notice in this section of Paul's letter is verse 12. Paul reminds the Corinthians what he is not doing. And the first thing to see, this is not a con job. In fact, look at that with me. Chapter 5, verse 6. Not chapter 5, verse 6. Chapter 5, verse 12. I've written it wrong in my notes. 
This is what he says. He says, we are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Paul is straight off the bat trying to help the Corinthians with whom he has a relationship to see he's not trying to pull a swifty over them. I mean, don't you hate it when, you, when someone is trying to convince you of something, especially when it involves long-held beliefs, all the buying and selling of things and therefore the handing over of the transaction of cash? Don't you hate it when rather than try to convince you or persuade you based on evidence and sound logic, someone trots out the old cringe-inspiring phrase, just trust me. It immediately makes you ultra-suspicious, especially if you don't know this person well and you have no basis for just trusting them. That's not what Paul is doing here. He wants the Corinthians to know up front he's not leveraging their existing relationship to con them. He's not trying to commend himself, but rather he is laying down gospel truths plainly and demonstrating how to answer the critiques of those who would accuse him of playing fast and loose with the gospel. It's not a con job. And the second thing to see is that Paul is not crazy. Have a look at it there in verse 13 with me. He says, If we are out of our minds, as some are saying, it is for God. If we are in our right minds, it is for you. In other words, Paul is acknowledging that some people are calling him crazy, and he's okay with it. He realizes that it sort of comes with the territory of preaching the gospel of Jesus. Some people will think you're out of your mind if you are a Christian who believes that the Bible is God's word and is therefore true in everything it claims about Jesus. If so, that's to God's glory. But of course, Paul's not crazy. He's in his right mind and it's for the glory of God and the benefit of the Corinthians that they realize this. First two things to see. It's not a con job. And he's not crazy. So what is this gospel that Paul wants to remind the Corinthians of? What are the core beliefs or the guts of this message, if you will, that will either cause people to call him crazy or recognize the enormous earth-shattering news? Actually, I wonder if you could answer that question. Could you answer that question? Regardless of whether you presently accept it as true or reject it as nonsense, Could you fairly and accurately explain the core beliefs of biblical Christianity, the gospel? Could you do it? And when I say biblical Christianity, I don't mean what someone who calls himself a Christian once told you it is. I mean Christianity as it is described, explained, unpacked and commanded in God's word in the Bible. Could you accurately explain that gospel if someone asked you, what is it that Christians hold as core truth? And I want you to reflect that on, on that for a second. And I ask it because increasingly I've found that people who presently reject Christianity most often haven't actually rejected biblical Christianity. They've re- rejected a caricature of Christianity that they've heard or witnessed someone play out in real life. I'm like, let me give you a couple of examples. It's the smiling preacher with the flashy white teeth. He may have a Bible in his hand, but as he flies around the world in his private jet, he seems more interested in getting people to give him money than actually opening the Bible, reading it, or teaching you what it says. Have you seen or heard that kind of Christian gospel, air quotes? It's nonsense. It's not biblical. It's not biblical at all. I reject it outright, and so should you. Or maybe it's the gospel of good works that you've tried and given up on as an impossible stupidity. 
if you're from a Catholic background, you'll be well-versed in this, but it's not exclusive to the Catholic tradition. In fact, I would say that this is the basic idea at the foundation of every religion in the world. The basic idea that if you do enough good stuff in life, hopefully you'll counteract the bad stuff, and on balance, you might just do enough to scrape yourself over the line when you stand before God on Judgment Day. And if you manage to keep up with a few overtly religious-like practices along the way, a bit of meditation here, a bit of confession over there, maybe a pilgrimage or two, a bit of charitable giving, where's the shrapnel? Whack it in the box, make sure it jingles. Or if you recite some prayers or phrases, that's only going to strengthen your case. Have you ever heard that Christian gospel air quotes? Have you rejected that as false and phony? Good, so have I. Absolutely anti-biblical. It's a complete odds with what Scripture says, and you should toss it out as garbage. Now, I hope you realize, rather than go through all the possible phony gospel messages and caricatures of Christianity that you should reject, what is the gospel message according to God's Word in the Bible? What is it that Paul is trying to remind or persuade the Corinthians and us along with them about the ultimate reality that will drastically reorient everything you think, do, and say from this point on? Well, let's look at five core beliefs of Christianity that Paul mentions in this text. It's not the whole story, but it's a pretty good start. They're there on your outline if you've got them. I've got them written, but you'll see them come up on the screen as well. Let's have a look at the five biblical Christianity core beliefs. Here it is. Number one, Jesus' death on the cross has implications for all people of all times and all places. Now, I'm not just making this up. Have a look at it there in verse 14 of the chapter we just read. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For Christ's love compels us, says Paul, because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Did you hear that? Paul is saying that Jesus' death has implications and import for all people of all places. All people means all people here. But what are the implications? What's the purpose of this death? What is the potential import for people? Well, it doesn't stop there. Have a look at the next one. Biblical Christianity, core belief number two. Jesus died then to change the way you live now. Look at it with me there. Verse 15 It's the very next verse. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Here's the theme in the title of the sermon again. Jesus' death demands a completely new paradigm or lens for understanding and living life, not focused on yourself, but focused on him who now gives new life. That's the gift of self-forgetfulness. But how is this so? Why does Jesus' death make it necessary for you to reorient your perspective so drastically? Let's be honest. This is nothing short of an enormous shift of perspective, isn't it? How is it so? Well, let's have a look at the third thing he says. Biblical Christianity, core belief number three. Jesus' death became the gateway to a new creation hope. That is, Jesus' death and resurrection from the dead provides the transition point between an old way and a new way, an old creation order and a new creation hope. Look at it there in the next two verses, chapters, uh, sorry, verses 15, 16 and 17. 16, sorry, let's go from there. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come. The old has gone. 
the new is here. There is a gateway through Christ's death and resurrection from the old order to a new hope, a new creation hope. Why was that necessary? How does Jesus' death and resurrection do this? What's wrong with the old creation order that requires the introduction of a new creation hope? Why was this necessary? Now, I think you know this intuitively, both by your observation and your experience of the present world that we live in. It is broken. (laughs) Anyone want to say that it's not? It is broken both in terms of the way we treat the, the creation itself, the way that we treat each other, the way that we all demand the right to shape God if we allow such an entity to exist in our own image, according to our own standards or wisdom. We're not just the victims of this thing, we are the perpetrators of it too. Do you realise that? The problem is not just out there, though it is, the problem's deep in here. This world is a broken place and I'm part of the brokenness. God's assessment of human fallenness comes under the general title of sin and it's not so much an action, oh, you did this or you didn't do that. It's not so much an action as an inescapable condition that infects all humanity. And if you think I'm wrong on that, here's a little test. Just live one week according to your own standard of morality. Just live for one week in perfect alignment with your own standard of morality and I guarantee if you're honest with yourself, you'll fail. And if you're not honest and you say you succeeded, you'll at least be guilty of lying. We can't keep our own moral standards and we find ourselves perplexed without excuse. But how does Jesus' death then impact or solve the problem of human sin, which we are all quite obviously infected by? Well, here's the the fourth core belief. Jesus' death is the means by which God can punish sins and yet pardon sinners. In fact, look at it in the text. It's the next verse again, verse 18. Paul says, All this from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And how could he do this justly? Skip down to verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is a marvellous, marvellous statement. What does it mean in simple terms? It means that God has not looked the other way or ignored human sinfulness as though it doesn't matter. Rather, he has dealt with it, pouring out the just punishment and judgment it deserves so that his justice can be seen by all, but he's done it in such a way that he can still be merciful towards sinners who recognize their need of saving by personally paying their penalty in the death of Jesus. Jesus, being fully man, can represent humanity and at the same time being fully God, able to satisfy justice. Verse 21 is what we describe or what we call the great exchange. Jesus, who had no sin, the only perfect person, stands to offer 
to personally pay the debt of sin in his death for those who ask. And in exchange, he gifts his righteousness, his perfect record to the sinner who can then be freely, justly pardoned by God. It is an extraordinary message in invitation at the heart of biblical Christianity. But how does it relate to you personally? You see, this is not just some idea floating in the ether. This is an idea that ought impact you deeply, personally, profoundly now. How does it do so? Well, here it is here. The core belief that Paul wants to point out to the Corinthians and us. Number five of this passage. Today is the day to be forgiven and reconciled to God through Jesus. Where do we see it in the text? Well, read it with me there in verse 25, verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. In fact, he doesn't just leave it there. He says it again. You can hear his heart and his desire, his yearning for them to hear the personal application and implication, not just for the Corinthians, but for you and I also. Have you been reconciled? Have you been made right with God through Jesus? There's no more important question to ask and answer. And so he pushes this fact again and again. Chapter 6, verse 1, he says, As God's co-workers, then we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Chapter 2, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Which leads to the final question, folks. What will you or what have you done with this great exchange offer through Jesus? Your sin for his perfection. Not what have your mum and dad done. Not what does your grandma say you should do with it. Or what does your friend say you shouldn't do with it. What will you do with this offer of forgiveness and restoration and new creation through Jesus? It's a great time to be thinking about it because the truth is you will exchange many gifts over this period at Christmas. You will give and receive, you will open and you will enjoy many things, I hope you will. But nothing compares to this offer of exchange from God through Christ. Your sin for his perfection, for his forgiveness, for his reconciliation between you and God. Every gift you get this Christmas will either spoil it will break, it will die, or it will go out of fashion. This is the one gift that will last into eternity. Peace with God through Jesus' death in your place. But like all gifts, it must be received to be enjoyed. So don't just admire this gift from a distance. Don't just appreciate this gift in theory and leave it there unopened on the, and unapplied on the mantelpiece of your life. Because the angels have heralded it. The king has come. Peace on earth. Mercy and reconciliation with God is on offer through Jesus. It is the gift that keeps on giving to be celebrated not just at Christmas, but every day of your life if you're trusting Jesus as Savior and King. Mitch is going to come up and lead us in prayer. Time to reflect. Thanks, guys. Alrighty, please pray with me. Father God, Thank you for gifting us with Jesus. Thank you that you made him who had no sin to be sin for us. 
that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We thank you that you have freed us from living for ourselves. Please help us instead to live for Jesus, to see his name glorified throughout the world. Father, help us to be your ambassadors during our Christmas celebrations. Help us to speak kindly, act generously, and bear patiently with family members this Christmas, especially um, with whom there might be tension or animosity. Help us also to take opportunities in conversation to speak about Jesus and the gift of forgiveness that he offers. Father, we pray for those for whom Christmas is a difficult time due to separation, loneliness, conflict, sickness, or the reminder of family members who have passed away. Please grant them your spirit of comfort during this time and help them to fix their eyes on the eternal hope that we have, where there will be no more fractured relationships. We also pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who will celebrate Christmas in poverty, persecution, sickness, or without a home. We pray that you would increase their joy, knowing that they belong to the new creation. In Jesus' name, Amen.